keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation, we'll hear part one of a two-part interview with two of the contributing authors of this brand new book, here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Remind listeners that uh, KPFK is presently in its summer fun drive, and it's with you, the listeners, that help support the work that us as programmers, as well as KPFK, continue to provide as a community service to all of you. And here on American Indian Airwaves, we are fortunate enough to have this space to help bring and elevate Indigenous voices from multiple perspectives. And as a thank you gift for supporting us here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK, we are offering a brand new book titled Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. And the book is co authored by Nick Estes, Melanie Yazzie, Jennifer Denedale, and David Correa. It's a phenomenally new book on the violence of settler colonialism and, and investigates settler colonialism and explains the violent dynamics of what they refer to as border towns. And it's a phenomenal read. It's a brand new book that just released, and we're offering it here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK as a $100 premium, a $100 thank you gift that you can pick up by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or visiting the kpfk.org website and clicking on the pledge widget and picking up this brand new book, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Marcus? Yes, Larry. The Red Nation's Rising is a contemporary, essential document in where Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz stated this may be the most important organizing manual ever produced by social movement in the United States. That being said, Larry, that we can see, we provide our listeners, which is a unique thing more than any other program out there as far as for indigenous populations in Southern California and people that listen to us over the Internet, that this book, we provide you with not only educational and a summary of what is going along and to acquire this native liberation some of the topics in there that are riveting and that are controversial. And so from the area of land imperialism, they don't say that, but I will say that, the very beginning to 
up and two, including PL280, and up and including this contemporary issues that we bring up in the America Indian Airways is a must book to read. Now, why do I say that? I say that because of the fact that it talks about these different issues. It talks about what we've been describing within the American Indian Airways of anti-Indianism, of Indian killers, of looting, counterinsurgency, seller scams, and burn the village. Controversial, necessary, and also, Larry, a very damning essay and discussion of capitalism. No, absolutely, Marcus. I'm in the book um, titled Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Right, The authors contend that everything in a settler world is a border and every settler is haunted by this border, a native presence that should not exist, that blurs the edges of settler ontology. And while that might sound a little... Uh, infused with some academic jargon, um, what's so powerful about the book in using this metaphor of border town as a way to describe all the various forms of settler colonial violence. And then towards the end of the book, as you mentioned, offering up an indigenous manifesto for decolonization, for eradicating, if you will, forms of settler colonial violence and capitalism. The book just covers a wide array of issues, issues that we've discussed here on American Indian Airways over the years, but also issues that you certainly do not hear about in the American mass media landscape. And I think that's really important uh, when we talk about the work that we do here on American Indian Airways and KPFK, that we do provide as an alternative media outlet, meaning KPFK and American Indian Airways, we provide different perspectives on a wide variety of issues. And we certainly bring indigenous voices to the forefront here on American Indian Airways, but also just the issues that we do cover uh, with the indigenous folks, the grassroots people, the educators, the the artists, the, co- the cultural educators and bearers out there that uh, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing on a weekly basis, that we provide different perspectives on all the issues that we cover that you don't find if they even make it into the American mass media landscape. And that's what's so important about the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves. That's what's so important about KPFK as an alternative media, public media institution that operates on a completely different model that's not beholden to any corporate underwriters, that's not beholden to any advertisers. And it allows us as programmers to engage and express and provide those new, refreshing, grassroots, marginalized, unheard voices and perspectives. And that's why we want to encourage listeners to support us here on American Indian Airwaves, support Pacifica's KPFK as a long, multi-decade 
institution and public media in bringing marginalized voices over to the airwaves and discussing various forms of social injustice and human rights abuses. And I'll put those terms in quotes for for those of you that are going to pick up the $100 premium item that we're offering here on American Indian Airwaves. It's a brand new book called Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. It's a brand new co-authored book by four authors, native and non-native, and you can pick it up by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and click on the Donate Widget button and pick up Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Marcus? Yes, Larry. Also, people can go to kpfk.org, look at that site, look at the list, and get the book. This is the only time, Larry, that we talk about a particular book like we have done before, about the situation, and if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of the same old news about oppression, exploitation, and this healing that we have, this revolutionary healing, that they talk about that a little bit, in which... Larry, this is the book. It's inexpensive as far as our particular amount, $100 for you Native people that belong to church groups, belong to social organizations, belong to different social media. This $100 you can pledge. And I want to quote this book, and it talks about peace and healing, talks about the how capitalism strips the revolutionary potential of this healing. It goes into that, and I won't mention that, but it goes into that. But it says something that's really dear to my heart, and it reads as follows, and it talks about this healing process. The issue of healing, which was quelled radical political demands coming out of the revolutionary period of the 1960s and 1970s, by turning outrage at native suffering, trauma, into a charitable enterprise. To me, the book unpacks that, and the book creates a particular dialogue. And that's what we want to do, our dear listeners. We want to create this dialogue. We want to create indigenous and non-indigenous, indigenous supporters, people that are in the nonprofit organizations, the people that are in the profit organizations, people that are out there, to pick up the phone, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. You are not going to get this book from corporate media. You are not going to get this book from other radio nonprofit organizations. You can only get it here, Larry, and our listeners by picking up the phone. We're talking about a $100 pledge, our gift to you, and we use this book, Larry, in order to raise the consciousness of people, raise the understanding of people. And they might, they might not look at certain aspects of the book as a know-all or solve-all solutions in its entirety, but yet it gets to the root of many, many issues. This book, and we're talking about, Larry, Red Nations Rising, and I thought this creating this... Um, charitable enterprise is saying that trying to commodify our struggle and many of the people in the 60s and 70s sold out, bought out, 
or dropped out. And so this, this is a book in which is contemporary, and these young writers talk about these things that we talked about during the 60s and 70s, gave it a more up-to-date flavor. And I think, Larry, this book, and for our listeners, is something that is, it goes beyond the niceties. It goes into the essence, just like our other books that we have um, featured here in the America Indian Airways Global Police State, All the Real Indians Died Off, and so on and so forth, about this is a controversial and yet essential for Native peoples, Indigenous peoples that are organizing out there, that have study groups out there, that want to know the climate out there, and for the world that are listening to America Indian Airways is a, a, a sense of summarizing what we've been doing the last 40 years. Larry. Oh, absolutely, Marcus. And, and each chapter is packed with uh, numerous topics that they cover. You know, for example, the one chapter on counterinsurgency, the authors talk about criminalization, the boarding school era, uh, and boarding schools in general, race, charity, as you were mentioning, the civil rights reports, gender, right, hate crime history, and more. That's just in one chapter. And what's so remarkable about the book is you're saying it's direct, it's succinct, it's powerful, it's illuminating, and it's a fantastic read. It's brand new. It's called Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. It's co-authored by four authors, Native and non-Native authors, Nick Estes, Melanie Yazzie, Jennifer Denetdale, and David Correa. It's a $100 premium. It's our thank you gift to you, the listeners of American Indian Airwaves, and saying thank you for supporting us and Pacifica's KPFK. Again, you can call 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735 or KPFK, or visit the kpfk.org website and click on the pledge widget. And if $100 is too expensive for you at this moment, you can also become a KPFK Donors Circle member. You can decide to make monthly dollar donations to KPFK by clicking on the KPFK pledge website. And so there are many different ways to support the station. And we, what we'd like to do is we'd like to play listeners a snippet of an interview that I had the privilege of interviewing two out of the four co-authors of our $100 premium item, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Again, it's our thank you gift to all of you. And we want to remind listeners that you're listening to American Indian Airwaves here on KPFK. And Marcus, what we'd like to do is play the first segment of part one of this two-part interview with two of the contributing authors, as I just mentioned. Our first guest is Jennifer Dene Dale. She is Dene, or from the Navajo Nation, and is a professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. She also serves as the chair of the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission. And our second guest is David Correa. He is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He organizes with Abolish APD, a research collective focused on confronting the violence of the Albuquerque Police Department and committed to the abolition of police as we know it. 
And now the first segment of part one of our interview on Red Nation Rising. In introducing Red Nation Rising from Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation, I was wondering for our listeners if maybe you can start with that concept of Bordertown and what you and David and, and the other authors mean by that, because so often in right settler colonial epistemologies, the idea of colonial spaces with borders is wrapped up in that binary construction, right, of urbanism and rurality. So what does everybody mean by the concept of border town in relationship to Red Nation Rising? Okay, so Larry, I just want to thank you for inviting um, me and my colleague David Correa to discuss or talk about uh, the book Red Nation Rising Two of our um, other authors, Dick Estes and Melanie Kayazi, couldn't make it today. But yeah, the, the book Red Nation Rising um, from Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation really comes about because the four of us uh, in our conversations, discussions, um, find that, found that we had common research interests in this concept of borders and, and border towns. And, and so we came together and we decided to collaborate to write this book. And when people talk about uh, borders, they uh, um, mostly think about international borders. Um, so, uh, for example, between the United States and, the Mex- and Mexico, or um, the United States, it's commonly what people think about when they think, when they hear the word border. But um, we've always been aware, and I've been aware um, since I was a child, because I've lived it, um, of how a border um, as a concept also applies to those spaces between indigenous nations like the Navajo Nation and the, the towns that are established just outside of the boundaries of indigenous nations. And so border towns are not just um, something that happens in the southwest along the Navajo Nation, for example, but also happens in other spaces where there are um, indigenous nations, for example, like in South Dakota, um, with like the Pine Ridge, for example. And so there's a common commonality of experiences um, that we have in terms of um, border town um, as a concept. And so these border towns are spaces in which indigenous people come into. They're made up of indigenous former territories. Um, they're established um, in places where uh, settlers, incoming settlers, have access to indigenous resources and are able to establish their economies um, just beyond tri- indigenous nations. And they do compete and they do build, create themselves based upon their access to indigenous resources, which includes land, which includes um, natural resources, and which includes the labor of indigenous people. Um, and so, David, do you want to add to my definition? I think that's great. You know, the only thing I might add would be that, you know, when we're talking about a border town, we're talking about a place, we're talking about a relation, we're talking about a particular history mm-hmm. around color colonialism. Mm-hmm. There's so many dimensions of a border town that, that we wanted to bring more clarity to the term because it serves as a kind of fulcrum for settler domination. And, you know, so, and it's also part of Native vernacular. Everyone who, you know, everyone on the Navajo Nation, for example, knows exactly what you're talking about if you refer to a border town. So we're using that language 
the language that's used by by people who have to confront the border town. And then ultimately, you know, we need to be more clear about the stakes. You know, a border, particularly an imperial border, as we write in the book, is an, is a spatial expression of an intent murder. And so a border town is, is that sort of like, the, that's the spatial expression of that intent writ much larger, scarring the landscape, and in a way forcing Native people constantly to enter. Um, you know, Jennifer tells me all the time when she's going to go to a border town that she's just driving into town, she gets to start to get nervous. And uh, there's not, that's not an accident. That reaction is produced by the history and the contemporary practices, particularly among police and vigilantes, that go on in all border towns. Mm-hmm. Yes. In listening to both of you and, and just understanding the the concept and the usage of border town, I also think of that uh, was that Westphalian notion, right, in the rise of the nation state and the creation of treaties and how the act of establishing settler colonial borders is so violent, which is um, clearly articulated, you know, in its various forms throughout the book. And maybe your thoughts on that and how that, how that concept relates to uh, parts of uh, Red Nation rising from border town violence to native liberation. And I'll start with you, Jennifer, if that's okay. Thanks. I think one of the things that we wanted to articulate was that these spaces in border towns, and we include um, urban spaces like um, cities like Albuquerque, like Phoenix, um, like Rapid City, that these spaces are very much often violent spaces for indigenous people. And that when we see this violence against indigenous people, it is a sustained violence that we wanted to pay we wanted our readers to pay attention to a structure of settler violence that is directed at um, indigenous people and that this is this has been occurring not only since the formation of, of um, settler colonialism but that it also continues to feed upon itself in the present time and people often either do not recognize it the settler the sustained um, Settler violence is structural, but they also tend to then become apologetic and say, you know, but things are much better now. And we clearly don't see that things are much better in the present for Indigenous people in these spaces. David, did you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, settler colonial violence is a lawmaking violence. That's the point of it, right? It's upending a native order and replacing it with a settler order. And so mm-hmm. one of the, I think your example of the sort of Westphalia is, is, is important really in terms of a kind of heuristic to understand the purpose or the, the mechanics of the border town. You know, there's no, there's no reforming the violence of the border town. There's no redeeming settler society because the laws that we think of giving it legitimacy um, are actually you know, a product of settler violence. Like all that sort of settler violence in the border town produces so the legal status of Native people as forever required to submit to settler law and authority. So there's no reforming this, as you point out in the book, that, you know, there's no redeeming this world. And so the book is an attempt to imagine uh, a Native world to replace it and, and how we might go about finding in this sort of world that the settlers have created on Native land the places to set those fires of liberation that we talk about in the book, which are both real and metaphorical fires of, of liberation. Towards the end of the book, you, the book uh, expresses indigenous 
a liberation, but also an indigenous manifesto. But before we get there, I was wondering if we can um, maybe give some examples, give our listeners a, a flavor and an indication of what the book covers. I know the chapters are thematically laid out, but there's you know a variety of topics, and I'm, I'm sure between the three of us, we could probably spend a whole hour easily talking on each topic. But for people that are listening to the program, uh, give them a sense of what's in the book and what they can expect to read in informing and enlightening themselves. Well, when we talked about um, this book, this book really came into uh, formation from the, when, when the four of us went to the border town of Flagstaff, Arizona, and um, spent a week there in a house laying out the design of this book and, and what it was going to look like, the format and key concepts of this book. And that was like uh, four years ago at least. And, you know, one of the things for me, um, what the what the readers I think can, can get a sense of first is this uh, of indigenous history, this interrogation of binaries. Um, so for example, one of the things that indigenous people often hear in these border town spaces um, not only just from the citizens of, of these towns, but also from its administration, from um, from its officials, that we don't belong there as indigenous people, that we're invaders, we're aliens. Go back to the res is one term that you'll see in the book. And so that takes up the these one of the binaries that we look at. One is that there is a boundary between the res and urban tradition and modern, for example, and we interrogate and we take to issue those kinds of binaries. And for indigenous people, and for many of them, it's often profound to recognize and to articulate that these spaces are actually traditional indigenous territories, you know, and so we're not the ones who are aliens, we are not the ones who are invading um, these spaces. Um, we belong to these spaces. We belong on this land. And so one thing then is the way in which we take binaries in some of the key concepts. Um, we also intend the work to take up indigenous feminisms and indigenous queer critiques. And so we try to be inclusive in terms of you, we, we may not name it explicitly, but one of the a couple of our frameworks are um, indigenous feminist and indigenous queer in its foundation. Um, so those are two things that I can think of of what people will see in this in this book. Um, David, I think we've organized it really as a kind of series of um, I guess you'd almost say keywords. You know, there, there's the book is organized uh, around eight chapters, uh, starting with this opening introduction introduction that I think lays out the state and, and the purpose of the book and the perspective we're taking um, and drawing parallels between sort of native social justice movements and, and black-led social justice movements. And yeah. then um, conclu concluding with a, a manifesto that sort of really lays out very clearly w where we stand. Um, and in between there, you know, our, our series of chapters within which we introduce concepts and terms, you know, we were thinking about trying to, it, it's difficult to write about something like a border town that, that, that we wanted to find so many ways. We wanted to find it as a place. We wanted to find it as a relation. We want to examine its history. We want to discuss the stakes, right, and the relation among border towns. And, 
and that that becomes really difficult difficult to do if if we're not allowing ourselves to be kind of flexible in how we're doing it. So the book is really, I think it's an easy book to read in the sense that readers can decide how they want to read it. They can go in and out from chapter to chapter. They can select the terms or concepts that we define in the book because we put those all in the table of contents. You know, we're defining things like white supremacy, law, police violence, church, relocation, Indian country, anti-Indian common sense, forced sterilization. We've got 70 or 80 of these concepts that we think are crucial to know, to understand, sort of through this lens of border towns in understanding settler colonialism. And I think what, what our argument is, is that seeing the border towns this way helps to, you know, inoculate ourselves against this, the, all the ways in which sort of liberal reformism promises us, you know, the structures that exist already can fix this problem, that there are, there are measures we can take. And, you know, while we don't at all think we should uh, ignore pressing questions that might actually pr- protect people's lives against the violence of the state, the violence of vigilantes in this country, we're not trying to produce a book that, that offers a route to reforming this. Rather, we are trying mm. to produce a book. I think, I think the structure and organization of it demonstrates a book that sort of lays out where we should really be, be paying attention. You know, how is the board of structured and organized and assembled? And what are the concepts in terms that, that give that momentum? And that's, that's how we've organized the book. Jennifer, did you want to add something? You know, we, we talked about the key, some of the key terms that you'll come up with, some, so that you'll read as you go through, and, and the way the book is organized as, as key terms. Throughout the book, you see um, this is not just a book of critique. It also offers some direction, you know, not some, but a direction. So when they use, when the word indigenous liberation is used, people, you know, have questions, for example, like the word of police abolition, and they immediately have a knee-jerk response, many people. And they say, well, that's not a good idea, you know. But this book really lays out why and how it's difficult, if not impossible, to trust the police, you know. And so based on this history, this pattern of police violence, then what do you do in the face of that? And I think this book offers direction. It also offers some direction in terms of um, indigenous liberation. Um, one key concept in there is um, kin- based upon kinship, that we have to begin creating these spaces of um, community, a, a sense of community, uh, a sense of community consciousness. You know, and that's based from on indigenous terms. It's the relationships that we build, and so I think that's also a key concept in this book. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with two of the contributing authors of the brand new book, Red Nation Rising: From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. And now back to the interview with Jennifer Denatedale and David Correa two of the contributing authors. Yeah, I really appreciate um, you know, how you've organized uh, the chapters thematically in, in these key terms, and I'm, I'm sure we could go through all of them, but we want folks to pick up the book and, and read it for themselves. But um, the chapter on uh, settler scams, when I read it, um, getting with uh, the, the discussion of property and and how the, that is so violent in of itself as a settler colonial concept and, and how it's reinforced. 
and and how that relates um, to indigenous peoples. That land is simply not property of ownership because even the settler colonial notion of property requires the violent establishment of a border, right? right? And and, mm-hmm. and also, you know, in talking about um, some of the violent events um, that occurred uh, out there in, in Gallup and, and throughout the Southwest in the 70s, is um, you mentioned when talking about the nonprofit uh, uh, industrial complex system and the, the Tax uh, Reform Act of 1969 really opening the doors for the creation of the nonprofit sector, the 501c3 sector, and how that really becomes a, a new capitalist uh, industry for the privileged, the wealthy. Yeah. Right, uh, the resource, uh, the wealthy of um, the various industries that have a long legacy in perpetuating forms of settler colonial violence. So, I, but also I, I appreciated the critique, and, and maybe um, both of you can um, respond to the critique of neoliberalism, because so often for individuals that might consider themselves enlightened allies or supporters, but they ascribe to these ideological tenets of neoliberalism. But you lay out in the book what makes it problematic. And I was wondering if you could un- unpack that for our listeners. In, the, in a really sort of explicit way, we draw on Diane Millian's point about the way that you know historical trauma gets folded into a kind of neoliberal politics when, it, when it's applied to, to Native nations. I think more, more generally, you know, I, I think the book is, is attempting to confront a politics, even, even, you know, on the left in the U.S., I think on the real left, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I, think, I think liberalism is not a politics of the left, but on the left, I mean, you know, this sort of neoliberal ideology is really, really shifty, and it's really sort of gotten in, in really deeply theologically and a lot of, a lot of political thinking that, that really elevates the individual over common interest. Uh, that, that really, as Jennifer was saying earlier, becomes very invested in these sort of binaries of, of, of us versus them, or, um, here or there, the border town, right, native land or reservation. And, and trapped in that kind of thinking, it becomes really difficult even to, to find comradeship in the kind of political struggles that, that the four of us are, are engaged in and many of, I think, your listeners and the readers of, of our book are. And so we're, you know, I think that, um, I think our critique of, of neoliberalism in the book is, is maybe a familiar one to some on the left, um, but it's a little bit, I think, more important, at least in our view, when it comes to the border town, because, you know, these, the border town, the politics of the border town are, are almost opaque. Right? It's really, it's, it's very difficult to sort of see these physical spaces as inherently political. But, and the only way to do it is to really strip away the sort of, the, I think, that very conservative thinking that, um, that infects a lot of us uh, on the left. We have to sort of unlearn a lot of things often politically. And one of them is just this sort of like, you know, valorization of the individual as a, the important political subject uh, in society. And then how would one then actually engage in a politics of collaboration um, to undo settler colonialism? I mean, I mean, how would that happen? It, 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 it's almost a, an impossibility to get that imagination operating among some Native folks. And we're trying to figure out a way to, to deliver that message to move them in that direction, right? So that there is a, there is a, 
a help a sense that this book is is like you know a kind of antidote to the kind of like highly individualist thinking that um, that got us in many ways contributed to where we are in the first place. We have just heard from the authors of the book Red Nations Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation, and the subtext of that is the Border Town Violence Working Group, which is this part they're part of. These authors are part of that. And Larry, what's so interesting about this book is that not only is it like Roxanne Dumbar-Ortiz talks about how this is a important organizing manual, I look at it as a sense of important thinking manual as far as how do we think about our reality. It talks about space. It talks about capitalism. It talks about settler colonialism. It talks about these different things that we have been addressing over the decades. But one refreshing thing about it, Larry, and to our listeners, it's new, brand new. And it talks about recent situations all the way from land to culture, all the way from language to religion, all the way from the beginning of these United States to our present situation where the reservation system, and they have a section of it called off-reservation, and they talk about And I think this is interesting for Southern California and for our listeners throughout the United States and Mexico and Canada in that many of the Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, live in urban areas now. And because of that, they give a little description of that, of why this occurred. And one of the things that the indigenous people in California need to understand is how the, non, how the indigenous population got to Southern California in the first place, number one. Secondly, not to ignore the recent history of California, but also an important point, and I want to point this out to our listeners which are loyal, which want to hear about not only the struggles, but solutions. And this book gives you some solutions. The solutions are talking about the notion of liberation, native liberation, as they describe it. And what does that mean to you? What does that mean to the listeners? What does it mean to you know all these different activities throughout its recent history, from Standing Rock all into, to today, talks about supporting Native peoples. And we're seeing that supporting many, many Native peoples is about taking a, not only a nice soft chair or a couch or a position from a comfortable position, but going out and to reviewing the, this book, to reviewing this particular gift that we offer to you by pledging $100, and to realize this Native liberation for you native people living in Southern California and all the different urban areas, it's a book in which you can read. It's very palatable. In other words, it's easy read. It's a book for your study group throughout our airways. And you can use this book in order to bring up a different topic. One of the topics that I think is important is property relations. And that property relations, it goes into that, a snippet of that. And I think... The books that we had before talking about that, but yet this is so important that it provides the native person in the urban area that are away from their quote-unquote homeland and to realize what now capitalism 
and what that means and where we have to realize that this is the obstacle. This is the, the wall. This is the structure. This is the, the laws, means, the prisons, all that that we talked about in our previous fundraising books, the Global Police State. It talks about these different things in a way it's understandable, Larry, and the way it brings up some issues that might not be too too comfortable, but issues nevertheless. And some people might say, well, this is way out. This is way out there. And this is why we bring it to you, our listeners, because we know that you, you want a book that describes these features that no one is going to describe in a way that it is a reflection of Native life. True to form, though, it's not a cultural book. It's a political book talks about culture, talks about land, talks about language, talks about healing, talks about these different things in order for you to get a grasp on our space. And this, this, the notion of space is in there, but I wanted to say this. Space and our sense of what is our reality. So pick up the phone, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. And if you are on the computer listen to this, you can go to our, the KPFK website, kpfk.org, kpfk.org. Go to American Indian Airways, Red Nations Rising, from border town violence to native liberation. A gift from us, American Indian Airways, to you all. Larry. Thank you, Marcus. Absolutely. Uh, the book is, again, it's brand new. It's Red Nation Rising from Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation. It's It has four co-authors, both indigenous and non-indigenous. It's a phenomenal read. It's powerful. It's informative. And it's empowering. And we want to remind listeners that, yes, this is a $100 thank you premium item here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK. But again, if that if it's beyond your financial means to support, if it's just a little too much in its cost, we want to encourage listeners to also visit the kpfk.org website and become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by simply making monthly dollar donations of your choice. And so that is another way to help support uh, the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves and help support the work that Pacifica's KPFK continues to do after over 50 years in public media. And again, you know, we want to remind listeners that you know, for those of you that are out there in the podcasting world, even the podcasting industry has slowly become an oligopoly, and and there are just uh, a handful of companies slowly dominating the podcasting industry. And if you are a podcaster out there listening to us, you know, on one of those streaming platforms that. It shows like ours and the mar- marginalized and unheard voices that we bring to American Indian Airways are the exact kind of voices and perspectives that you cannot hear even out there in the podcasting world. So we want to reach out and connect with all of you that uh, that listen to us, um, you know, via podcasting as well as on radio or as well as uh, streaming on the KPFK.org website. Again, the book is Red Nation Rise 
Rising, From Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation. It's co-authored by four authors, Native and non-Native. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, It's empowering. Again, it's informative. Again, every chapter in the book contains a numerous and variety of topics uh, related to the forms of settler colonial violence in the book ends, right, in talking about indigenous liberation. In fact, the authors contend that when they speak of liberation, meaning we meaning them, we mean a desire to be free once and for all from the imposition of the United States on our lands, affairs, bodies, minds, spirits, and cultures. And that's a, a powerful quote from the book. And if you want to understand what that means, then we encourage you to pick up and read Red Nation Rising from Bordertown Violence to Native Liberation. Again, call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and click on the KPFK Donate widget. You can pick up the book. You can become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member. You can do both, or perhaps find another premium item on the KPFK item that you would like to pick up along with Red Nation Rising. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. And Marcus, we'd like to play the second segment of part one of our interview with two out of the four contributing authors of Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Our two guests are Jennifer Dinehdale, who's from the Diné Navajo Nation. She's a professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and she serves as chair of the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission. And our second guest is David Correa. He is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He organizes with Abolished APD a research collective focused on confronting the violence of the Albuquerque Police Department and committed to the abolition of police as we know it. And now, the second segment of part one of our interview on Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. I know in the opening forward, David, since you mentioned thinking, um, there is an introduction and uh, the concept of critical thinking. And I was wondering to maybe unpack that or, for our listeners. But also, when we talk about settler colonial violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples, there are several references in the book and help our listeners understand that these are real lived experiences of Diné and other indigenous peoples, and that this perpetuation, manifestation, and amplification or intensification of forms of settler colonial violence that's addressed in the book could very easily and and is contributing right to this uh, intergenerational process of of genocide and of course that uh, reifies or emphasizes the importance of where the book concludes in talking about indigenous liberation and and kinship and some of these other important concepts. Uh, Thanks, Larry. I think in terms of fostering critical consciousness, which is um, one of our hopes with this, one of the aims with this book, is that one thing is that indigenous studies 
in, in Native Studies is often relegated to some kind of field that only that's a very specialized field that only a few people are interested in. When actually, as I think this book um, demonstrates, indigenous studies is just foundational to any in any intellectual inquiry. And the second thing is that our work for all of us is that we connect the, the academic to community-based practices. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we might talk about these ideas and these key terms, um, but also in our own very different ways. We also practice a community. Uh, we also practice a community based based upon you know the work that we espouse and the ideas that we espouse in, in this book. I can think about it in two ways. One is that I'm originally from um, Tallahatchie, um, which is on the Navajo Nation on the New Mexico side, and we still um, you know it's been our home, uh, our place of residence. Um, since before 1863, when the Navajo people were rounded up under Kit Carson's brutal campaign against Navajo people and sent to um, remove to a concentration camp at Bosque Redondo, so you know our our place there, our our presence there predates American invasion. And the other day, so when I went home to Tohatchi recently, I was talking to a relative, and she was telling me that. A relative had been jumped by white young people in Farmington, New Mexico, and beaten. And she was telling me about cleaning his wounds, you know, on his head. And so uh, recently, um, Rod, uh, I, I'm, I'm spacing the guy's name, the journalist who wrote that book on the what's called the Choke Cherry Massacre, which was the mutilation and torture of three Navajo men in Far- Farmington in the 1970s, he recently, maybe two years ago, was invited by a non, mostly non-Indian organization and our population in Farmington to talk about the, his experience in writing about the Choke Cherry Massacre. And his, I, I had some access to his presentation there. And then he was recently interviewed by a Navajo person. And at the end of his, the interview that he did, um, he says, you know, things seem to be better. Well, he hadn't been back in this area for 10 years, um, and he came back after, years after the um, incident had happened and the protests that were happening on the ground in Farmington. Um, he was there, he witnessed it, he left, and then he returned a few years later to write his book on the Choke Cherry Massacre. And then he, le- you know, and so he, he's writing it from afar, but coming back to do interviews. And then 10, you know, what's this now, 20 years, 30 years later, he then says, you know, I think relationships are better between Navajos and, and whites in Farmington. And I'm just like, I'm just talking to my a relative the other day who's telling me about her son who was brutally beaten on the streets there, you know. Um, so no, things haven't changed. And I think it's, it's important th- that this book acknowledges and puts out there that things have not changed, that this violence is, is structural. Okay? The other thing I think that's really important in the, in the present moment is just how devastating COVID-19 has been for Indigenous people and in this, uh, from my particular experience for the Navajo people. You know, If it hadn't been for this kind of settler violence that takes for itself land base and, and in, um, resources, and creates their own economy based upon indigenous lives and resources. 
um, we might not have seen such a devastating response or effects from, from COVID-19. Okay? Um, and so this, this book and the terms and the way we talk about this um, has, a, has an urgency for the present. Jennifer, as I listen to you, would it be fair to say if you take into account the intergenerational layers of the various forms of settler colonial violence and how they build off of each other, uh, that that contributes to a process of a genocide, but it also places indigenous peoples in the position of facing mm-hmm. immediate yeah. extinction? You know, I can't gauge it in terms of is it worse? You know, I don't know what what's worse than worse in, in the present moment. Obviously, we're in a, we, you know we're in a drought now, and this impacts indigenous people um, whose resources have been taken to to create the fun spaces of resorts of of cities like Phoenix and and Las Vegas, you know, and so their suffering then becomes me- fodder for the media when indigenous people like them have always suffered under these kinds of conditions of of where capitalism takes these resources and creates these these luxury spaces you know and so i can't think about it in terms of things are worse things are better you know this is sustained devastation and intent intentional intent as um genocide for indigenous people david did you want to add to that and um, i'm thinking of um the book's reference to to human rights and and what all of you um, have expressed when referring to human rights. Well, I think Jennifer's comments there were were perfect. I I, I couldn't improve on those. Um, and, and in terms of human rights, I mean, are you are you just are you referring to just the sort of the way in which human rights require like you know recognition from the state? Is that is that the yeah that. But also, you know, it just in response to what Je- Jennifer was offering and, and sharing with us is that, you know, Jennifer's saying that I can't say that it's worse, right? But certainly people might think of um, the notion of human rights and what, what does that mean? But in the book, all of you offer a pretty profound critique about human rights in relationship to the state. Right. No, I- <laughs> It's just such a hard one to do in a short amount of time because I'm thinking of a, of a listenership or a readership who might see and in some ways recognize all the ways in which um, the, even the concept of human rights provides some some recourse, some some sure. way to, to build some sort of you know oppositional resistance to the kinds of uh, existing ongoing patterns that Jennifer is describing. I mean, there has to be something that we can turn to. Um, but what we point out in the book, particularly related to, to human rights, is uh, the slipperiness of the term and concept, and that human rights is really, as a concept, has been kind of hijacked by sort of Western liberalism as a way to really just reinscribe the legitimacy of the state. It's the way the state constantly reinforces its authority. And if there's one entity wearing a black hat in our book, it's the settler state. And so, you know, we're not we're not developing strategies for people to um, find solutions to engaging or, or being recognized by by the settler state. And so the, the, the essay on, on human rights is, is an effort, like a lot of it, to you know, pull the curtain back a bit and, and to, to point out to readers that this concept is a lot of work that, that maybe it's not obvious. 
Um, and, you know, investing in human rights as a concept is investing then in the, in the present and future of the other state. And that's, that's not mm-hmm. going to be a very successful strategy in the past. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes the second segment of part one of our interview with Jennifer Denatedale from the Dene Navajo Nation, who's professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. She also serves as chair of the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission. And our other guest, David Correa, who's associate professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He organizes with Abolish APD, a research collective focused on confronting the violence of the Albuquerque Police Department and committed to the abolition of police as we know it. We were speaking on the brand new book, Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Both of our guests are contributing authors of this $100 premium item and thank you gift that we're offering here on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK. Again, we encourage listeners to call 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735, or visit the kpfk.org website and click on the Donate Widget button. You can pick up the book, Red Nation Rising, or you can become a monthly Sustainer Circle member by making monthly dollar donations of your choice. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to both of our guests, Jennifer Dale and David Korea. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. After all the lies and the empty promises, we take a stand on the land that you tried to bury us. For all the pain and all the suffering, we take a stand. We take a stand. We sleep cage against our fears. Try not to become what we've been told. Wearing our souls on the thread. The moment of silence is over.